You're listening to a CNA podcast. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome back to this episode of Work It. We are down to our last two leaders in this special series, and we've got an incredibly interesting guest today that you do not want to miss. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay, how many people can boast about working in a jail? Pulling a business out of Myanmar at the height of a coup and negotiating a US $20 billion merger. Well, that man is Jorgen Rostrup, the Executive Vice President of Telenor Group. Telenor is a Norwegian telecoms giant and Jorgen is from Northern Norway, many, many kilometers away from Singapore where yes. he runs the Asia business. He's also the CFO of the group. Welcome to our podcast, Jorgen. Thanks for having me. Okay. So we'd like to start by asking you to give our listeners a bit about yourself, your background. Mm. We know you're from Norway. Now you're here in this humid part of Asia. How did you end up in Singapore from where you came from? Yeah. I guess I ended up here because I have had the tendency to say yes when I've been asked to go places. <laughs> So I'm born in the Arctic area of, of Norway, in the northern part of Norway. Huh? I had my education mostly from Norway and the US, and then I worked in different industries mm -hmm. throughout my uh, life. I've had the privilege of being in Singapore before. I lived here in the 90s. I'm old. I lived here in the 90s, and I've lived and worked on four continents in Africa and three times in the US. So I've been around uh, in addition to living in Norway and Europe. It's been all following opportunities and interesting uh, tasks. But have you always been with uh, telecommunications? I've been with three companies representing several industries. I've been in oil and gas, I've been in metals, mm. I've been in fertilizer, and I've been in telecom. Mm. Three companies, and I've had the, the fantastic privilege of being pushed to new problems to solve or, yes. or things to develop. So I've had many different tasks uh, across these industries. Yeah. So uh, Telcom only in seven years. Okay. I like the, he starts by saying that he says yes, right, to opportunities. Now that I think is not easy to do, especially when you have spouse and children already. By the time you say yes, they have to say yes too, right? So how hard was this yes, this conversation yeah. to consider coming to Singapore and to or, or even perhaps, to Africa, wh yeah. wherever the work takes you? Exactly. Twice it has been my wife triggering it, actually. First time in Asia was my wife. She got a job for United Nations. Mm. So I actually went back to my employer and said, can you send me to Asia? <laughs> And also to Africa, uh, she was working for Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I then moved to Africa and worked, uh, ah. got a job. So we have been able to balance it out. It's been a joint project, and, and she has been also very, very important in all this. The kids have had a lesser vote in it. As they <laughs> should. Sure. They have followed, as they should, exactly. Okay. Okay. So in our introduction, we teased a little bit about you working in a jail. That was part of your bio. To be clear, it was a summer job. Why of all the things you could have tried, did you choose that one? I mean, that was my question. What did you learn? And exactly what do you do in prison? Yeah. So it was interesting during the bachelor and the master degrees. And what did you do this summer? Well, I went to jail. Yes. <laughs> you could pull a joke or two about that. So I was basically a prison guard. When everybody else went to their internships with businesses, I went to the prison and worked as a guard in the summer holiday, in the winter holiday, Christmas holiday, and so on, and, and financed my study that way in a way. And I do what guards do. They take care of the things that are happening in the society of the prison during mm -hmm. the day and they watch over things. But you also talk to people and calm things down and try to support and 
and try to comfort. Mm. And Crispina, I guess you alluded to it. That gave me two takeaways. First of all, even though people have done stupid things, there is also a lot more to to a person. Mm. And I saw that very clearly in prison, and that was as a young boy. So it was it was useful for me because mm. I could be a little bit judgmental. Mm. But here I saw people that was much deeper and had much broader perspectives and had the love for the family or whatever had mm. their they had their hobbies even though they were in for criminal activity for the fourth time or so on. So it brought my perspective. The second was the second week and the first year I was thrown to the wall by a guy who got provoked and, and upset with me. Right. And of course he shouldn't have done that and he got his consequences of that. But I learned a lot from it because I had clearly provoked him. Mm. I, I was nervous. I was doing my job and I was creating ultimatum and conflict <laughs> as opposed to finding solutions. Right. So again, trying to find solutions to things is also a learning from it. You know, actually that segues quite nicely into our next question because in your day-to-day job, you deal with numbers and bottom line. But what was interesting for me reading a little bit about it was mergers, Mm. right? Because you're not just talking about business. Mm. That would be the easy part. Mm. You're talking about culture, Mm. right? Even here in Asia, When Singapore sits down to negotiate with our ASEAN partners, we do have to give and take. So I'm I'm curious, having banged out all these deals, give us a tip or two secret things that you've learned (laughs) about working with people completely different from you. So the first learning point is get a good team behind you. (laughs) Let me just say that. Get a good team behind you because (laughs) this could not be done by one person. So the two mergers, Crispina, we are talking about is one in Malaysia and one in Thailand. Yes. And these two, each of them are the largest mergers ever in telecom in Southeast Asia. So they are, both of them are big, really big. And we had the pleasure and the challenge of doing them in parallel. And there are less synergies between two mergers because of differences and because of culture, because of differences. But anyway, telco together with automotive industry, together with oil and gas industry is under hefty disruption. There Mm. is a lot of things happening now. Digitalization, the climate issues and everything. Totally changing the industries. And we in Telnor figured that we should be early in trying to achieve larger sizes and and upgrade the companies and build bigger, stronger entities. Mm. And we went on these two mergers. What is a merger? A merger is a lot of things, but it's also creating a sort of a mining crisis. You're Mm -hmm. creating a small crisis Mm -hmm. in the environments that you are merging. Because all these people, these two organizations are going from the known to the very unknown over a very short time. Mm. So, of course, you get all the strong and good elements and all the challenges with the cultures in those two organizations into a mix overnight, literally. Mm -hmm. So a merger is a lot more than the numbers. It is really about getting these two cultures to work together to see the benefit of working together. Yesterday they were competing. Every morning they woke up and say, how can I beat these other guys? And suddenly you are going to wake up with the mindset, how can I work even closer Mm. today than yesterday with these guys? It's a tremendous shift in people's mindset, in leaders' mindset, and how you operate these companies. And then Singapore is not equal to Malaysia, it's not equal to Thailand. You Mm -hmm. are quite right. In that respect, no not a one Asia, it's different cultures that you need to respect and take the best from. 
And also these companies are different. We have our upbringing, our systems, our practices. Oxiata in Malaysia is similar to us from an ownership structure point of view. It's mm-hmm. a telco. Mm-hmm. It's partly owned by the government. They have yep. their international portfolio. But they have their practices and their corporate culture. Uh, CP Group in Thailand is a large conglomerate, very pride history, big company, one of the biggest in Thailand, tremendously successful. But they have their practices. Mm. And all this is going to mix together. So now we are in that exciting phase of really playing this out. And so far, touch wood, it's going quite well. Seems like there are a million of moving parts at the same time. So how do you try to convince everyone or at least to guide them into a common message, a common direction? Because everyone will see things so differently. And as much as it's a merger, I have heard many people who always feel that they seem to be the one being acquired and nobody wants to feel like they are the second-class citizen. So how do you play all this out? Yeah, Adrian, I think you're right. And there is not a single answer on it. But but first of all, this process where for the two merger fairly similar. I think we spend a year together just talking on senior leadership level. level huh? mm. So we spend a year talking together. Why do we do this? How do we do a merger of equal? Uh, what are the principles, the high-level principles? Huh? And then we spend another year detailing out what does it mean in, in that ended up in, for example, a shareholder agreement or something that was more firm and precise. And then you announce it and then you start talking to the governments and so on and so forth. In parallel, you do a very thorough planning process for mm-hmm. the merger. So there are three years of preparation, huh? but then it's all in the execution as you're mm-hmm. alluding to. And you have to be willing to not handle all the million pieces. Huh? You have to handle some of them. You have to pick the mm. biggest parts, the most important part. And you have to also put together a, a combination of people from the two cultures and really work with them to foster a new culture mm. and not an old culture in a new wrapping. Mm. And that is where I'm very optimistic. I think we are on a good way on su- succeeding in that. And that is the most important. And then the synergies and all those other things comes after that. So like marriage, you shouldn't rush into anything. That's true. It takes three years to plan before you Are you talking about the ceremony or the marriage (laughs) thereafter? (laughs) But you're right. (laughs) So there's so much that goes on even before something is negotiated, right? Yes. Yes. There is a big and very important process there. First of all, it's important because you're narrowing down what is the new child going to look like. So that is one part of it. But it's also a very useful reference point for everybody to have when we later get unclarity, when Mm. we get things that we are uncertain about and how do we want to deal with this or we get disagreement. Then to have been through a long story of discussions and dinners, we can refer back to, yeah, but we talked about, I think we agreed on so-and-so is very useful. And there you are probably back to the marriage Mm -hmm. analogy again because it's about partnerships, huh? Yep. Yep. And any partnership, merger or any else partnership, having developed a stronger basis and a reference point over time is useful when it gets difficult and it will get difficult. When the road gets a bit rocky. And it will at times, Mm. it will. And at the height of COVID, the company and yourself move over here that obviously wouldn't have been an easy period. So we'd like to really revisit that time. You mentioned about building a great team for your M&A. I think that will also have a 
some learnings on application on how you build a good team, how to keep the business goals, and also importantly, not to lose your sanity during the lockdowns. This was an interesting phase, both for the company and for me personally. At March 20, we announced that we would build a, a stronger headquarters in Asia for the combined activities. And we have 200 plus million customers in the region. So it's a sizable business in total. Mm-hmm. And I was the CFO of the group at that time. I had a a cool job that I loved. And then I was challenged by my boss to take this new challenge on board. I thought about it quite seriously for a long time. And then I went all in. And we decided then to just do it. We hoped that COVID would be over earlier, but as March 20 was still early in the COVID period. So we had to operate all this under COVID. We had to establish it and operate it and get these projects moving. And I was also going to be available for a big organization in Asia uh, in time. I have almost four months in quarantine. Uh, Four months? In that period. Not in one go, but in several quarantines. Yeah, yeah. at the height of it, we were quite strict too, right? Oh, Singapore was one of the tougher places uh, for many reasons, one of the tougher places. But that was the the thing, how it was. So uh, it was tough. I was privileged to be able to attract a lot of people, both from Europe and from Asia, to join in Singapore. Mm -hmm. so, So I could ask whoever I wanted to join in. And I think the whole concept of, of taking Telenor Asia to a bigger company and also handling the disruption that is happening in the telco industry was enough for people to join me in the team. I was very fortunate. I built a strong team. That's great. Listening to him doing mergers and setting up an Asian office during COVID, I think you deal with difficulty quite well, I suspect. Do you? <laughs> like, for example, one of the things that came up was how you had to pull uh, the business out of Myanmar. Counts is a pretty big difficulty in my view. What's your general philosophy when things are going badly? Like, how do you deal with the crisis? So, building the company, planning for the two mergers, and then getting Myanmar on top was more than we uh, anticipated. Yes. And it was difficult for all of us put a, a lot of strain on, on everybody involved. Of course, most of uh, that in Myanmar, but also for the rest of us. Um, I tend to try to distinguish between pressure and stress. Uh, that's my way of handling it that's personally. I've had periods in my career where I've been stressed mm. and, and I'm not, well, I don't think anyone are nice when they are stressed. I'm not nice when I'm stressed. Okay. I'm, I'm not nice that's to myself. To I'm not stra- <laughs> nice to myself and not to others. But one way for me to handle that is to accept and think about and and talk about being under pressure. Mm. And everybody in business, everybody will feel pressure and are accepting it to a certain degree and are learning to live with it and Mm. are even maybe enjoying it. Adrian, you have pressure. I'm sure. Everyone does. Sure, yeah, exactly. Everyone does, yeah. But stress is something else because stress, to me at least, because then you're going in a spiral downwards. You're just piling it on top of each other mm. and, and you're struggling to sort it out and, and get things done. And that has helped me to say, oh, this is more pressure than I had anticipated, but let's let's try to handle it and, and try to be rational towards it. Mm. I had a good team. I have learned to not know all the details and to delegate and to uh, fortunately that way show trust. I'm quite organized myself and I'm prepared to take decisions and ed- hopefully educated decisions and, and well worked through. 
but also uh, live with a certain risk that might not work, but it's better to take a decision than to stall everything. Right. And I think that helped us that we all were working according to this in that situation. We also in Myanmar did one thing that I think was important. I've learned throughout my career to think that people's safety is my job number one. Uh, I come from the oil and gas industry. Mm -hmm. I come from metal industry where there is a lot of things going on, big machinery, etc. And Um, accidents can be deadly, right? Exactly. And uh, working on it in Europe, in Asia and in Africa, I have always tried to put people's safety first, Mm. no matter what job I've had, actually. We did that in Myanmar also. So Mm. the morning of 1st January 21, so it's it's already two and a half year ago, Uh, I was called up in the morning. There were soldiers, young soldiers in our operating rooms and in our data centers, smashing equipment Mm. and demanding us to turn off the network. They were in the midst of a growing coup Mm. and they wanted to stop communication. Two, three hours later, we had already decided in Telenor and later that day in the Telenor corporate uh, group board of directors, uh, we had already decided that there is one thing above everything else. That's our employees and our partners, Mm. employees, safety. Mm. And having that as a guiding line through the one and a half year we were struggling with the coup was very important because we really used it. We stayed behind it. And that was decisive for many of the other decisions we took in the end, pulling out uh, from one of the dearest companies that we had in the portfolio. So it was a tremendous loss for us, Mm -hmm. but I'm still convinced today we did the right thing. What I took away from that, that you were sharing, Jorgen, is that Actually, when you have a clear idea of what the value is that you're working towards, your decisions become slightly easier, would you say? Yeah, I would probably not be the one that can claim that I have been through my career tremendously value-driven and been very clear about it. Mm. There is a lot of leaders talking Mm. about it. I, I also talk about it, but I felt sometimes I'm struggling with kind of defining the value yeah not defining it but operationalizing it oh putting it into mm. practice and and showcasing that you know this is how it is yeah but this is probably the strongest case i have right. for having lived in a situation where we really put down some values we also had the corporate values of not leaking information about our customers to governments mm. without proper decisions and so on and so forth all that played into role of the final decision of pulling out mm. we lost a lot of money we lost mm. one of the coolest companies we had we were really and i even i were really value driven in that situation and you're right crispina that made it harder in many situations of it because True. I sometimes wish we could have pulled an easier conclusion out of discussions, yeah. Yeah. but it was really guiding us mm. and, and for the right reasons, for sure. the right yeah. reasons. Yeah, I yeah. think putting people first definitely made a lot of difference because if the value has been, oh, let's go for profit first, then it would right. have been Our business a at totally any different cost. direction yeah. altogether. Exactly. And of course, no one would say that in 2023. No one would <laughs> yes. say that, let's put profit <laughs> They'll first. be cancelled. <laughs> they would be taken away. Yeah. But we really put that people safety card so high up that we pulled back on market effort, uh, not to have too many people in the streets. We did all these things also while operating it Mm. in order to do whatever we could to make people safe. And it was decisive for the conclusion we ended up with. 
Are you looking for ways to make your money work harder? Tips on saving, investing or retiring early perhaps? Or advice on big-ticket decisions like buying a house or owning a car? I'm Andrea Heng, host of CNA's top personal finance podcast, Money Talks. And these are some of the things we find out for you. Each week, I get a guest to share personal stories and answer burning questions that help you make sense of the latest financial trends. Go check out the complete Money Talks playlist on the CNA app, Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. You mentioned earlier on about how challenging or sometimes it could be difficult to action on values or how to translate that into action. But your experience in the military seems to show that you are able to put that into action. And it has to do with something that happened during a NATO exercise and Avalanche killed 16 young men. And three days later, your garrison was asked to go out again and you refused because the weather was bad. You said that the Military isn't used to being told no, but eventually the exercise was cancelled. I can imagine how tough it would be. I mean, personally, I have served in the army as well. How has this been a formative lesson for you as a leader? And what do you tell your staff about managing upwards, especially in situations like this? First of all, I guess that everything we do through life and through our career, sticking to jobs, <laughs> is building knowledge, insight, and who we are. And this military incident for me was the second beside the prison thing mm. that in addition to business school was my platform for starting out. 16 young boys died due that avalanche. It was a big accident. We were three of us asked by the thousand soldiers in our camp to say no to a new order of a new exercise. Mm. And we were all scared. I was scared. I was 19. I knew nothing about anything. I was terrified. So it was probably more by social pressure and an instinct, perhaps, that I said, okay, if you ask me to do it, I'll do it. So we stood up and said no, and it was chaos in the camp until uh, a very wise general uh, flew in and, and cancelled the exercise and, and probably saved me and made this a good experience or a useful experience for me. That has provided a notion about doing the right things these experiences do the right things do what we have to do in difficult situations and that is that is leaderships that is leadership to me to do the right things when it's difficult to do them but because they are right uh, you still need to do them what if uh, fear interferes fear will always interfere fear and doubt huh? mm. how often are we hesitating our self into decisions yeah. because as long as you're not taking a decision you are free to decide and you haven't made a call that's true but you have to make it so fear will always play in but again trying to follow a notion that in the long run doing the right things and taking those tough calls because they're right not because they are pleasant or because you look smart or whatever is the best thing in the long run I learned another thing in that situation also. I was called with a general down to a mm. press conference. Again, I was 19. I'd never been to a press conference. Mm. And again, by luck and maybe an instinct, I played down the situation. Uh, of course, the general did, but the general, mm. had, but I also played it down. I didn't take a, a smart attitude of, yeah, we beat the colonels and, and we won the fight and the discussion in the camp. I mm. played it down. 
and the other played it down and we managed to thereby get out of it on good terms with the military. Mm. Which is another learning and that is when you do what you have to do, you're going to meet people the next week. When you are saying no to a partner, you are probably going to meet that potential partner in half a year's time. Yep. Play it down, embrace, try to find solutions and use words and use right. a way to do it. Embrace which I, humility. Which, yeah, exactly. Which Don't is, brag about your exactly, win. <laughs> exactly, which is building relationships over time. I love that. It's a good reminder that we will still continue to meet those people yeah, that we come across, true. even though there may be some sharp exchanges. But many times, temper just get the best out of us. We'll just burn whatever bridges out there, not yeah. realizing, hey, we're going to take the same lift <laughs> when we exit <laughs> the exactly, building. Exactly, and Exactly, and, and also it's tempting because it might have been a long struggle. You might have been discussing for weeks and you're tired. It's so easy if you then get the upper hand or you have made a decision yeah. or you're taking and a tough Yeah, and also your to, ego might, might exactly. kick in, right? And, and it might be very natural reactions and I'm exposed to it all the time because I'm tempted. I, I do my mistakes. But it, it is a learning element to at those times try to be smart and calm it down and find mm. the, the mm. bridge to the next the next meet. Yeah. Don't so always we... go for the mic drop moment. It may not be the smartest <laughs> thing. Okay. One last major question before we do the fun quick pie round. So we always ask about leadership style. Maybe you can tell us what have you discovered? You've been a leader for quite some time now. What have you discovered about your style and what works for you or what doesn't? So I have at least found out that I still have a lot to work on. I'm working on it. And the interesting thing is, Christina, I'm taking it more serious by the day. After 30 years, I'm still... <laughs> so now I have a, a coach here in Singapore. Oh, she's wow. helping me a lot. I used to have mentors before, but Adrian, I think mentor is more a, an old guy like me talking about experiences <laughs> yes. and, and telling how to deal with, how they dealt with situations. That's my experience, at least with mentors. But, but a coach, and she's very educated, very insightful. It's really helpful to point to, Jürgen, should you think a little bit more about this? Mm. How is it? What are you doing? Leadership, first of all, I'm quite structured. I have my morning sessions alone. I have a couple of hours every morning. I start early. I'm an early up and, and early to bed in the evening. So I'm up at work at 6, 5.36, and then I spend a few hours by myself to, to prepare, to make sure I'm prepared for meetings and all that, to participate and to be useful in the different settings. But the things I'm working on that will always be the, the leadership criteria is the respect part and the listening part mm. as part of that. And this thing I said about do yep. the right thing. Yep. Those two, to be able to take decisions however difficult they are because they are the right decisions mm. but try to to keep the the respect part very high and and really develop that and i really need to work on that and then there is one more in addition i have learned to enjoy the moment mm. a lot more than i used before mm. and i'm really trying to just be where i am with my career and with my job and mm. with my tasks and enjoy that. Never had a lot of plans of where I wanted to go and I don't have it now either. I want to enjoy where I am and appreciate that I'm in interesting settings. Oh. And continue to say yes to more opportunities. <laughs> uh, Maybe now he's too so tired. Continue to, to yes. evaluate. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, let's do a quick fire round. Okay, I'm gonna start first. So just whatever that comes to your mind. First question: You're a father of two grown-up children. What did parenthood teach you that work didn't? That uh, loves beat administration and and instructions. <laughs> <laughs> good one. Good one. Doesn't work with kids, right? No. Okay. What's the biggest career mistake you've made? If mistake could be the word that we use, or, or some version of that. There was one time I had to leave a job mm. because uh, it wasn't space enough for for me and my boss. Mm. We didn't work well together. When it happened, it was a tremendous loss for me. It was hard for me for okay. for a few months. Huh? You liked that job? I like it. I liked it, and I felt the loss, and I also. Felt badly treated, etc., mm. etc. Mm. Later on, I understood more of it, and and it was probably right because there wasn't enough space, but also that I could have handled that situation differently. So that is my one of my learning points from That's my career. Okay. Okay. What is one golden rule about managing your calendar so that it doesn't overwhelm you? If it is only one golden rule, is to have a very good uh, secretary, very good <laughs> private assistance. But it, it is, yes. of course, to spend enough time working on that calendar to make it a single tool, make it a full tool, have everything there, and and then also have a view on how it looks, decide how you want it to look, uh, and decide what meetings and what events and what uh, you want to participate in. Okay, best piece of advice a work mentor or uh, somebody at work gave you? I think I'll uh, point to my excellent coach in Singapore. Well, and, I must and, find out from him who and, is this coach. And what she has told me about listening and mm. keep listening. And I, she reminds me quite often about that. So <laughs> that's good for me. It's probably also influenced by one's career development. And when you are in certain roles, it's probably even more important than before that you right. are showing that you're listening and that you are managing to listen sufficiently. And I guess something related to listening, what is one feedback about yourself that you remember up to this day? Oh, you're tough on the questions. <laughs> I take a good feedback. I think a good feedback. And that is that I sometimes, when I've changed these jobs, I haven't said yes immediately. I spent quite some time analyzing it, discussing it, making sure there is a mandate in there, mm. making sure I understand the job to be done, because that is really what's driving me. So the feedback I got once was that we spent an awful lot of time evaluating this. But when you have decided, wow, it moves fast. Wow, <laughs> so, that's good. So it was a good feedback. Yes. <laughs> I just want to wrap up by saying that what struck me about your story or at least your journey, Jorgen, is that I think in Singapore, especially when it comes to young people, a lot of them take my view is that they take a fairly non-tested way of going to school and then picking the right internships and then getting a career. And very few have detours in their lives that that enable them to get interesting experiences. In your case, it was your summer job. It was your experience in the military. It was you saying yes to all these crazy adventures that I think becomes the sum of parts, like how it forms you and molds you as a leader. And I think that's such a valuable mm. thing. So if I may, can I comment sure, on it? Sure, of course. Uh, I, it's an interesting s summary First of all, I don't believe in the notion that 
the young people today are so different than they used to be when I was young mm. type of comment. I don't believe in that because everything today is slightly different than it was mm. 30 years ago. Of course. The adults are different. Uh, the <laughs> settings are different. The yeah. technology is different. So hence, we are all different. I think the, the young people of today are built of the same breed as we were <laughs> many years ago. Mm. But it's in a different setting and we, are all, we all have advanced or developed or whatever. But there is a tendency because of all the information and all the structure, also all the structure that as a parent put on my kids is football at that time, is school reading at that time. We go. So there is a tendency perhaps that everything is pre-planned mm. and it is detailed out and there is a roadmap. We didn't have the word roadmap 30 years ago, but, yeah. but there is a roadmap for everything. Also for young people who are going through a bachelor or an MBA mm. yep. and starting on their career, they're going to do this, that, and mm. this. Yep. Mm. While a career is a journey that you cannot, and I feel should not, plan in detail. Because it will not be the way you plan it. It will not <laughs> at all be the way you plan it. Amen. You can plan some, I really would have liked this. I want a good education. I want a year abroad. You can plan some of these steps. Mm. But believing that you can plan the 10 next years, it, it doesn't happen. Mm. And if you do, the the likelihood is that you're putting more limitations on yourself than the opposite. Mm. So the danger of being young, I believe, and plan it too cautiously is that you will not see the opportunities that are passing by because you are mm. all the way yeah, looking at this. Yeah, because you've got a roadmap, you right? You roadmap. Yeah. But there might be a road and a detour yep. On the side, that will create a, an immense experience, a lot of joy, and maybe also some career advancing elements. Yeah, we should all be careful of not being too structured and too planned on these mm. things because it is. We're talking about life here. And if your life has been that structured and that planned, uh, definitely you wouldn't have the bandwidth to say yes exactly. to all the different opportunity. And that's, that's the key true. thing that I really take away from mm. today's episode. I was reminded of an article that I read and the guest was saying you should say yes to almost everything before you're 40 and start saying no to almost everything after you're 40. Of course, 40 is an arbitrary number. Yeah, but la. the idea here is you should say yes early in your life yeah, so that you get yeah. exposed to different experiences, no, just like Yogan here. Yeah. And after that, take a more measured approach because sure. by then you already know more about yourself. Mm. You and know you're clearer exactly. about yeah. what you don't want, right? Exactly. You have you experience. You've got some feedback. You have noticed things. Yeah. So I hope people who are listening to this, you can also consider taking this approach and say yeah. yes to more adventures in your life because who knows where it might lead you to. It might lead you to prison, to Myanmar, <laughs> or even to, or Singapore. to Singapore. Yeah, yeah. from yeah. Norway. <laughs> All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you. And thanks to the CNA podcast team. We'll be back next week with our final interview in this special series. Please remember to go to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. Click follow. Give us a five-star rating if you liked it, of course, and a review. Till we talk again, have a good work week, everyone. <laughs>